Welcome to the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdick, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Thursday, October 27th. So he stole top secret documents on Iran and China, and he's still walking around free. My neighbor across the street got a ticket for parking too far away from the curb. You have to be eight inches or less away from the curb, I guess. That was a new one on me. It's time to lock this treasonous wannabe dictator up for good, don't you think? I'm talking about the former president, not my neighbor. My neighbor's a pretty cool guy, even if he does park a little far away from the curb. Big deal. Anyway, what we're going to do today also is a little different, at least format-wise. Trillion Health, the healthcare analytics and market research firm, released its second annual Trends Shaping the Health Economy report, and we're going to talk about some of those trends on today's show. To tell us whether they agree with the trends are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Mertzenson, partner at Transformation Capital. But before we say hello to Dave and Julie, I wanted to say hello to the sponsor of the Foresight Health Roundup podcast, Infor. By connecting the business and mission sides of healthcare, institutions can enhance staff experience and simplify patient interactions. With data-driven insights and greater operational control, our sponsor, Infor, supports your company in making healthcare a calling again for your staff. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? Doing great. Getting ready for Halloween. Just wrote up our inaugural Foresight Health Healthcare at Halloween commentary with our five favorite healthcare treats and tricks. It's a must read. Looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how are you? Yeah, the weather is getting pretty chilly here just in time for Halloween. And of course, I have a daughter in some sort of fairy costume that doesn't cover a lot of body parts. So it's going to be interesting. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Are you going to shadow her in your car as she uh, goes door to door? Of course. All right. Good That's for you. That's what we do, right? That's what we do. Good for you. <laughs> Don't be so old-fashioned, Mom. <laughs> Just get with the program. Uh-huh. Well, I'm with Julia on this one. <laughs> I am, too. All right. Now, before we talk about this new report on healthcare megatrends, I wanted to ask you about your run-ins with the law. Dave, have you ever gotten any tickets? And if so, what's the pickiest thing you ever got pinched for? The funniest and perhaps pickiest occurred sometime in the mid-80s. I was driving my brother-in-law's notorious red Chevette back to Iowa. That car had a stick shift. My brother-in-law, Mark, was in the back seat per usual drinking beer with a buddy. <laughs> we were we were on Route 20 going west, and there was construction in Galena, so we had to detour into the town. I pulled up to a four-way intersection There was a car with its lights on at the intersection that wasn't moving. I mistakenly thought that it was yielding to me. I'd slowed to a crawl, but uh, went through the stop sign. And of course, it turned out to be a police officer who pulled me over for doing a rolling stop through the intersection. It totally set me up. I parked on a slight hill, and I wasn't that good at a stick. And as the Officer started walking toward our car. The the Chevette started rolling backward and almost hit the officer, which didn't make him happy. (laughs) That also caused all of the, you know, empty beer cans under the car seats to roll out. So, you know, in full view of the police officer. And uh, 
he had no mercy on us. And in those days, you had to pay the fine or go to jail. So the fine was 50 bucks and we pulled our money and it had $58. So we were we were able to pay the fine and, and get out of Dodge. But I, I can tell you, we drive through Galena, you know, on the way to Iowa all the time. And I can't go through there without thinking about that traffic ticket and kill, still can't decide if I was lucky, unlucky or both. That's a great story. Was it the town of Stockton, which is right before you get into Kalina? Because I've gotten stopped there a few times. Or was it in Galena? Well, it was in Galena itself. Uh, both okay. Stockton and Elizabeth are notorious for pulling. Oh, yeah. You see, we've never talked about that. We both know those towns. That says something. All right, Julie, enough about our adventures in northwestern Illinois. Did you ever go back to your car to see a ticket tucked under your windshield wiper? And if so, what was the most ridiculous thing you got fined for? Well, I'll tell a slightly different story. When I moved to San Francisco in 1998, my first car was a Jeep Wrangler. And I could fit into most spots, honestly. That thing is small. But, you know, parking in San Francisco is no joke. So I would most nights park on the sidewalk. And back in the 90s, that was a $15 ticket. And I would get a ticket, I don't know, every couple of weeks, but 30 bucks a month was a deal <laughs> to park my car on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> which was great. So fast forward, now it's like 75 bucks if you park on the sidewalk in San Francisco. So I just feel bad for all those 20-somethings that, you know, <laughs> missed out on that opportunity. That's really funny. Cost-benefit analysis. I love it. Totally. <laughs> well, I've gotten my share of minor parking violations, things like expired meters or parking on the wrong side of the street for street cleaning. But the one that still bugs me was from college. I squeezed into a parking spot near class and one of my tires arguably was touching the yellow line on one side. I got ticketed for illegal parking by a student working for campus security. I won't say his name, John Rogers, but he also was our mascot for football games wearing this big Blue Jay outfit. So I guess if I was going to get busted, it might as well have been by a giant bird. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a good thing we're not bitter, right? No. <laughs> that was 40 years ago, and I remember it like it was yesterday. None of that has anything to do with today's topic, and that's these new megatrends from the Trillion Report. The report is 147 pages long, so sit back while I read it to you. Just kidding. We're going to skip to the good parts. The report identified 13 trends that Trillion says will reshape the healthcare economy moving forward. But rather than reading off all 13, I typed them up, cut them into strips, and put them into a hat. Actually, a stocking hat. I'm on my back porch, and it's pretty cold here. I'm going to pull one of the trends out of the hat and ask Dave and then Julie later to comment on them. Okay, Dave, are you ready? Here goes. You have number 12, and number 12 is only in healthcare can a monopoly lose money and regulators want to prevent more of them. Dave, do you agree with that trend? And if so, how will it affect the healthcare economy? I love this observation. Nonprofit health systems are the only businesses in the history of the world with monopoly pricing power that lose money. Lots to unpack here, but first let me make a few comments on Trilliant. The name makes me think of that gum commercial. I've known the study's lead author, Sanjula Jane, since she was a young analyst at the Health Management Academy. I've even guest lectured in one of her classes at Hopkins. 
Sangela is a rising star. She dissects healthcare economic trends as well as any economist I know. I'd encourage those who haven't to sign up for a weekly publication, The Compass. It comes out every Sunday and is a must read. Hal Andrews, Trillion's founder, CEO, and driving force is an old friend, serial entrepreneur, and incisive investor. Under his leadership, Trillion always speaks the truth to a healthcare industry that doesn't always want to hear that truth. This year's report is a textbook example of how Trillion's data-driven market analysis can undercut many of the myths relating to healthcare supply demand trends. Build it and they will come. No. Dire need for more surgeons? Not so much. The report's core message is that the 13 secular trends it identifies indicate a significant, perhaps catastrophic, decline in patient yield or demand, particularly among commercially insured inpatients. And this is all happening, of course, as operating costs are escalating. The report questions whether providers and related suppliers are prepared for this market reality. They're not. Given the scope of current operating losses, we may be witnessing the collapse of the nonprofit health system business model as it's operated for much of the last several decades. 250 hospitals have closed in the last 10 years. Last week, I interviewed Zeke Emanuel on stage at the Kane Brothers Healthcare Conference. Zeke predicted that 1,000 hospitals, that's almost 20% of the nation's current supply, will close in the next 10 years. The underlying reasons why the sector is under such pressure is that healthcare's artificial economics, based on supply-driven demand that supports premium payments for routine services, is just not sustainable. As an industry, healthcare has a very mature services mix. It knows how to address the vast majority of patients who present for care. Most maturing industries decentralize to reduce costs, get closer to customers and improve customer experience. While some of that is going on in healthcare because of the maturing service mix, the industry stubbornly retains an immature organizational orientation that prioritizes high-cost centralized delivery. You know, even under the current economic pressure with the trends that the Trillion Report identifies, most health systems are reverting back to hospital-centric operations to optimize revenues. This is not a long-term solution. The broader healthcare marketplace is dynamic. Much of the PE and venture-driven investment in healthcare services targets the very inefficiencies embedded within providers' unsustainable and centralized service models, combined with the sector's breathtaking inability to meet consumers' vital primary care and behavioral health needs. Market trends, like those identified by Trillion, suggest a major restructuring is underway. That's why I discount analyses like the one that just appeared in Health Affairs by health economists Andrew Sudamak and Daniel Polsky, who maintain that commercial insurance rates will rise over time to reflect providers' higher operating costs. It's also why I amplify reports like Trillion's that suggest that providers who ignore or minimize secular economic trends do so at great risk to their long-term sustainability. It's in this vein that Zeke Emanuel, again last week on stage at Kane Brothers, predicts that there will be a major healthcare crisis tied to rising costs sometime in the next five years. In the mid-1980s, economist Herb Stein said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Healthcare spending trends that cannot continue won't. That is the take-home message from the Trillion Report. If I were a health system executive, 
I'd read it and then re-rate it because they're right. So, Dave, then you agree with uh, number 12 that only in healthcare can a monopoly lose money? <laughs> I don't only agree with it. It's happening even in places where there's monopoly pricing power. Yeah. Julie, any questions for Dave? Yeah. So, Dave, I was naively surprised to learn that large insurers spent more on health sector lobbying than hospitals or health systems or I think providers on the whole and more than life sciences. So although this might be a bit of a taboo question, do you think there's a correlation between that spend and the increased scrutiny now on some of the provider transactions that we're seeing in the FTC? Yeah, and also the big loss by pharma with um, Medicare getting into the price negotiations. Right. And you've also got the AHA hitting a brick wall on its request for more emergency hospital funding to offset rising costs. Uh, so, yeah, there's something going on. The old saying says there's no honor among thieves, and the various healthcare sectors have been ripping off the American public for decades. It's something we talk about just about every week. I have no doubt that the payers writ large are trying to focus blame for healthcare's failures on pharma and providers. But having said that, I doubt that's been determinative in swaying congressional sentiment against pharma and providers. And part of the reason is I question the way Trillion's sampling methodology came up with the conclusion that you cite. They look at lobbying spending by the top five sector participants. This analytic approach misses association spending, you know, the AAMA, pharma, and so on, and skews toward industries with bigger players. Payers have much bigger players, and they're, they're individually spending more on average. Right. So everything I've seen through the years is that pharma outspends other healthcare sectors by a wide margin, and that providers in total outspend payers. Not saying Trillion's wrong here, but I'm ingesting multiple grains of salt as I read this part of their analysis. I like so much of what they're saying, but I'm not sure they got this one right. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, now it is your turn. So let me reach into the hat here. All right. Number 11. Provider burnout is exacerbating the longstanding physician supply shortage. Julie, do you agree with that trend? And if so, how will it affect the healthcare economy? Yes, I think I do agree with that trend. You know, a couple facts here, Dave. Uh, between 2019 and 2022, we lost almost 10% of physicians. They stopped practicing, period. And while some new physicians entered the workforce, we still ended up at a net 2% reduction in workforce. So we know these issues exist and we know this is a, a larger percentage than I believe in earlier years. But the key that I saw that I think connects this to some of Trillian's other findings is 18.5% of physicians changed employer organization or type of provider they were working for. And when you look at the number of new entrants that have come in, in novel care models and, you know, boutique primary care, concierge, all sorts of different things. Physicians haven't just left practice. They're shifting in ways that are important to them. So yes, healthcare workers are experiencing more stress, fatigue, exhaustion, with 55%, let's just remind ourselves, reporting symptoms of burnout. It's what we're seeing now is really this major shift in physician preference. Some are out, some to different sites of care or entirely new models. But the bottom line is 
they're voting with their feet and they're taking back some control. And these supply constraints are projected to remain for years ahead. Just some scary stats on this. And then, of course, I'll give you my opinion on what these numbers really are. The estimated physician shortage by 2034 is between 37,000 and 124,000. These are big numbers. That of RNs is 510,000. That's the estimated shortage of RNs by 2030. This is the most preposterous number I found. We have an expected shortage of hourly healthcare workers of 9.7 million. Like, how crazy is that that they're estimating at these these numbers? (laughs) So while these numbers are big, the numbers that are not as big but scare me a little bit more are we expect shortages between 14,000 and 31,000 of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. And that's going to just be exacerbated by good things that have come out, uh, like this new anxiety screening for children and adults. So, you know, we're seeing this across the board and in new categories that align with societal issues. So if these stats don't scream the need to automate away the administrivia, the routine vitals, the communications, and other low-hanging fruit, as they say, I don't know what does. However, I just see healthcare continuing to drive human-driven solutions, which is crazy. I will say this, Sam Glick from Oliver Wyman just shared a stat with me that 68% of Americans now support labor unions, and this is the highest we've seen since 1965. So the voice of the employee is coming back, and I'll just close with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, said something that I think all of us who are employers should really consider, and his quote was, we should reframe the question. I don't work for Microsoft. Microsoft works for me. Am I able to fulfill my career aspirations, my approach to having impact in the world? Somehow if Microsoft is acting as a platform for that, then it's very different. I feel connected with the mission. I mean, he's he's really trying to reframe the role of the employer here. And I think what's happened is many healthcare professionals went into their, their careers to have impact, but that impact has been crowded out by so many other things, and they're finding new ways to try to find that. Oh, my neighbor, not the one with the parking problem, but a different neighbor is a pediatrician, and he's now working for a large health insurance company, and he's getting his MBA. So there's a real example uh, 20 feet away from me. Thanks, Julie. Uh, Dave, any questions for Julie? Treat your employees well, and they'll treat your customers well. And I agree with Julie that healthcare needs to get back to being more purpose-driven. Somewhere along the way, we've, and Julie, this is a quote that you made a couple of weeks ago that's just stuck with me. We've we've turned caring for people from a calling into a job. So I, I think you're spot on there. So I absolutely believe that the healthcare system needs to do much, much more to relieve the administrative burdens and the other work pressures that are causing clinician burnout. Full stop. But having established that, Julie, I'd like to ask you a question on healthcare's macro supply demand dynamics and their impact on physician supply. You know, there was that study in the early 1900s that looked at the amount of horse dung in the streets of New York and predicted that by, you know, the 1950s, the city would be overflowing. And I'm wondering if a lot of these projections that we're seeing regarding healthcare workers are falling victim to the same type of analytic framework that believes the future will replicate the past. So 
kind of touching on what you were saying, but maybe going a little deeper, will tomorrow look like yesterday in healthcare or will the combination of technological advances, new business models, changing consumer demand and more scope of practice flexibility offset this perceived need for more doctors, more nurses, more technicians, (laughs) and most of all, more hourly healthcare workers? Yeah, well, two examples. I think I've talked a little bit about Roberta Schwartz's work at Houston Methodist, seeing great success in really automating as much of the, I'll call it administrative work as possible for nurses, doctors, in the acute care setting, developing, you know, virtual command centers, et cetera. I heard one of my first examples this week of where a hospital is using some of its budget for open positions to try to fund a digital solution. So I've heard it a little bit, but I still see desperate attempts to find new staffing solutions, new pools of people, you know, literally shutting down wings of service instead of trying to figure out how to move to the next phase. So will it look different? Yes, absolutely. I think many people will have to follow in the footsteps of Roberta Schwartz or 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 not survive. But as I've said before, I think health systems are sort of caught in the middle now. They haven't been focusing on their fixed cost infrastructure in ways other than perhaps building new revenue streams and new lines of business, which are helpful, no doubt about it, but don't deal with the core issue of the core business. So gosh, I hope we make some change. Thanks, Julie. And as I've mentioned before, I'm pretty superstitious. The fact that they pick 13 trends, not 12 or 14, is going to be unlucky for the healthcare system. So that's the depth of my analysis. Now let's briefly talk about other news that happened this week. Julie, what else happened that made you sit up and take notice? Uh, well, on Dave's mention earlier about rising costs, McKinsey just came out with a study called The Gathering Storm, The Threat to Employee Healthcare Benefits, that talks all about U.S. inflationary pressures and when we can expect to see you know, significant annual employer healthcare costs rise as a result. And I think people are worried today, and some of these effects we're not going to see until 24 or 25. So we have a long haul of issues ahead. And Honestly, you know, inflation is probably one of the scariest things happening to healthcare right now. Exactly. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any other news this week that caught your eye? I saw a report that Crossover Health has negotiated capitated primary care contracts with payers. That's really interesting because if we can do a better job of front-end primary care, that will lessen demand for more acute interventions later on. This is the type of market initiative that will reduce patient yield, patient demand. You know, Dave, there's a customer revolution in healthcare coming. Come on, people. Let's get with the program. (laughs) I'm on board, Dave, 100%. Thank you. And thank you again, Julie. And thanks again to our sponsor, Infor. Infor connects the business and mission sides of healthcare, enhancing the staff experience and simplifying patient interactions with data-driven insights and greater operational control. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And don't forget to tell a friend about the Foresight Health Roundup podcast. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Burda, Foresight Health.